Yeah. I want to start with some announcements once everybody's in and settled. So bring your coffee and have a seat. A um, handful of things to get started this, to this morning. And the first thing I wanted to mention is, uh, is tonight is uh, greater, and this is our environment for uh, our teens for worship. And actually, Adrian put together a video, so watch this. Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Want to make sure I invite you or remind you, teenagers, of Greater. It's happening this Sunday at 6 p.m. at Faith Community Fellowship. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is he even talking about? Well, hopefully you've been able to join us. But if not, we're talking about worship. We're talking about God's Word. Um, we're talking about time alone with God and time of prayer. So we just want, really want to encourage you to take part in this. We'll be at Faith Community Fellowship in Eldorith at 6 p.m. We hope that we will see you there. All right, so that's for grades 8 through 12. And uh, we feel like we're building a little momentum with this thing. We had a great time last month at United Baptist. And so tonight we get to host. And our friend Mike Page is going to speak. And we've got a lot of worship planned. And so that's for grades 8 to 12. For our teenagers, we're going to meet afterwards at Duncan. So we're just going to throw you into some cars. And we'll meet at Duncan for some drinks and whatever. And then the parents pick up there at 8.15. Okay? So that's tonight. And uh, then tomorrow night is Zumba Gold for the ladies and teen girls, uh, 6.30 tomorrow night. We were scheduled to do men's frat this week, but I'm making an executive decision on that in the moment. And we're canceling this week because uh, uh, Stan and I have had some scheduling conflicts. And so I know that you canceled on the 14th, met last week. We're going to cancel this week and we've got to flip some things around. So no men's frat this week. And then I just wanted to... Um, throw this out there. You may have seen this on Facebook, and some of you may have participated in the past with the Daddy-Daughter Dance, the Danny's Christian Daddy-Daughter Dance, and this year is on April the 1st at the Moore Community Center. It's $25 for Dad and any of his daughters, okay? So um, just, I'm going to put a, uh, a link on our Facebook page to this event, so you can uh, plan to be a part of that if you have an interest in that. Um, that would be, that'd be cool. Love to support that. And then um, on, in the lobby, some of you uh, already picked them up. Yeah, thanks. We can move on. I think that's all the information. That's it right there. Got it memorized? Good. And then, oh, yeah, ways to give. Just appreciate your continued financial support at Faith Community. We give you three ways to give. We'll come up with more if that helps you. Uh, offering boxes in the lobby. Uh, you can give online through our website at faithcommunityfellowship.com. And then you can give through uh, the P.O. box as well. And uh, any other method that works for you, just let us know. We'll make it happen. Uh, but we appreciate your financial support. We've had a good winter. Um, had a, um, it's been interesting. You know, this is our first year with our heating, new heating system. I think we're saving a little money, which is nice. And uh, your support means a lot, so thank you. Yeah, it works for you guys up there, right? You warm enough? It's, it tends to be, until the heat shuts off the first time, it tends to be 8 to 10 degrees hotter up there, we've checked. And uh, so right now it's 66 on the floor, so they're toasty up there. So we just, when they start shedding more layers than is appropriate, we've got to address that. So, <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> makes it hard to uh, recruit new volunteers when I give information like that, doesn't it? Yeah. You'll love it. It's Anyway, um, some of you already found uh, the little postcards for Easter. They're in the lobby. Put them out this morning. Uh, we've got a, a full weekend plan for Easter. We're going to have a night of worship here on Good Friday. 
And uh, a little bit, we're going to take a little bit different approach to this night of worship than we often do. Uh, our last night of worship, which was before Christmas, it was uh, very high energy and celebratory and lots of food and stuff for kids. And we're going to tone that down and back that up a little bit for Good Friday and try to have uh, kind of a Good Friday appropriate approach uh, to our night of worship and uh, with a focus, obviously, on the cross uh, for that Friday night. Great opportunity to invite some friends. Um, anybody that, if they've got, they, if they're a, a Christmas and Easter only in their church, and you think they should come hang out with you on Easter, Friday night would be a great time for them to come and spend an evening with us here for, that's April 14th for our night of worship, and then Easter Sunday on the 16th, we'll have all systems go and uh, have a few extra elements that are Easter related uh, on that Sunday. So this is a time, we've only got uh, three more Sundays to be uh, planning that. So start spreading the word, grab those postcards in your way out, make good use of those, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Hope you've had a good week. It's uh, good to see you here. I'm glad you're here. Everybody find a place to park today? So I just want to say thank you to our parking team because uh, apparently our, our parking lot didn't get plowed real well this week. So uh, for those of you who had to park behind the snowbanks on the other side and up and over, um, thanks. We've been talking about the church here. Uh, for a few weeks, since the first part of January, we've been talking about stuff that's related to our church in particular, to the global church, the church, the body of Christ. And uh, we're getting down to some really specific stuff. And uh, so today I want to um, continue that conversation. Because the church, I'm going to think about it this way, but the church is a really big deal. I mean, it is. The church launched over 2,000 years ago, or about 2,000 years ago. Not as an institution, not as a building, but as a movement. About 120 people. Think about that. Just 120 people went into the streets of Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago, and they said, God has done something unique among us. And right over there, outside those walls, right over there, a man named Jesus was crucified. And right over there, outside those walls, he rose from the dead, and we have seen him. And we didn't hear about it. We didn't read about it. This didn't happen 100 years ago or 200 years ago. This, this happened two months ago, and we saw it happen. And these people flooded the streets, and the Jews in Jerusalem listened to their message, and they embraced it. And within weeks, thousands of Jewish people in the, in the, in the very city where these events took place, within the time frame in which they took place, embraced the idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. In fact, that's the statement they camped out on, that he, and that he had risen from the dead. In the Greek New Testament, the little word that's translated church, if you were to read your Bible and read the New Testament, whenever you run across the word church, it's a translation of a Greek word, and we're going to put the word up on the screen for you. It's the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Let's just put that word up there. I don't know where. Somewhere a couple more screens in probably, Corey. Um, there it is. Ekklesia. Let's say that it's, the word is ekklesia. Let's say that together. Ecclesia, nice, you are Greek scholars just like me. Uh, I took a half year of Greek, that was enough for me, and uh, now I just read scholars who know what they're talking about, take their word for it. The, the word literally means an assembly or a gathering, it, it's what it means, it's the, it's a, the literal interpretation uh, is assembly, gathering, or congregation. And that's the word that the New Testament uses for the word church. And when Jesus launched the church, he launched it as a gathering around one simple idea with one simple mission with a very simple focus. I'm wondering, have you ever invited someone 
to church. How many of you have ever done that? You've invited someone to, to church. Okay, that's cool. Wow, that's awesome. Why is that such a difficult invitation to make? I mean, it is for all of us. I mean, it is for me, it is for you, it is for people who've been going to church for 30 years. Inviting someone to come to my house to watch a ball game is one thing, you know. Come over and have dessert and coffee and a conversation is one thing. But church, right? You know, it's like, it's just a difficult invitation to make. One of the reasons it's so difficult for so many Christians, and has been difficult for so many of us for so long, is because we're a little bit worried about what our friend will experience when they finally come to church. Here's something I believe to be true, that there are lots of people in our community, there are lots of people, dozens, maybe hundreds of people, who would like to connect with God, but the church thing scares them to death. They've tried it, they've been there, done that, grew up in that, it bothers them, scares them a little, freaks them out, and mostly it's irrelevant to them. And their problem isn't so much with God as it is with the local church. In fact, for some of them, they've been trying for years and years to figure out the God thing. But for some, one reason or another, they just don't want to do it through the church routine. And the truth is, most of them have a story about church. And unfortunately, the primary obstacle for them in growing in their relationship with God is the church. Think about what a tragedy that is. The interesting thing is when Jesus was on earth, all kinds of people that I've just described loved to be with Jesus. Everywhere he went to to teach, the unchurched, the untaught, the doubting, the confused, the bitter, whatever, they flocked to hear Jesus teach. And even though he eventually emerged as a religious leader, he did not spend time with religious people. The unreligious people flocked to him and the religious people were offended by him. And it became very evident when you read the Gospels that Jesus didn't really fit with the religious people and the religious people didn't really fit with him. It was the sinners. It was the unchurched people. It was the people like us who flocked to hear Jesus teach. Here's the amazing thing. As holy as he was and as righteous as he was, they were comfortable with him. As holy as he was and as righteous as he was, they were comfortable being with him. It's pretty cool. And yet today, the average church is just the opposite. The irreligious, unbelieving, doubting, bitter, confused person wants nothing to do with the church. The real tragedy is that the church is supposed to be the body of Christ. Think about that. The closest people will ever come to being with the physical Christ that you can see and feel and touch and hear and experience, the closest they'll ever get is the church. The church is left here to function as if the church were Jesus himself. That's why the church is referred to in the New Testament as the body of Christ. So why is it then that our friends and your friends and my friends and our coworkers and some family members, if they were to show up on a typical church on a typical Sunday, they would not enjoy it and they wouldn't go back and it would make little positive impact. They would find very little that would be helpful for them in terms of connecting them to their Heavenly Father. Why is that? Why is it that the church over the years has devolved into something that in no way resembles what we find in the person of Jesus? That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Because I have this concern about faith community, and I carry this with me all the time. 
I'm concerned that we would neglect this one thing that I think makes us effective and could make us even more effective. And I think it, the more I experience this, I think it makes us a little unusual. And my concern is that we would go the way of the typical established white steepled stained glass New England church. Because here's what happens. When a church develops environments that are no longer conducive or attractive or helpful to unchurched people, unchurched people no longer show up. And when they don't show up, I have this sense that God is hesitant to show up too. Because we're going to see in just a minute, he is as concerned, you could argue actually, and we're going to kind of make this point, you could argue that maybe he's more concerned about the outsider than he is about the insider, about the lost person than he is about the found person. And the best that I can tell, the thing that makes us stand out as a church in this community along with a handful of others is that we've stayed on track and we've stayed committed to creating and improving and working on environments where those who aren't sure, where those who don't believe, where those who have more doubts than answers, or those who've had bad experience after bad experience in churches somewhere, or those who simply don't care, where they're able to come and say, you know, I don't know if I buy into all this stuff, but that was pretty good. I'm not sure I believe all of that, but they put so much energy and creativity into serving my kids, and I know my kids are loved. That's cool. And I'm not sure where I am with the Bible as a whole and with the claims of Jesus, but the music wasn't half bad. And I'm not sure I'm ready to jump in with both feet, but some of the things that that guy up front said might just help me. There was something about that. The coffee was actually pretty good. And I didn't even feel judged. Wow, shocker. Nice surprise. I might even think about coming back. I'm talking about that thing that attracted unbelieving, irreligious, doubting sinners to Jesus, to his teachings, to his invitation to follow him. They weren't sure what to think. They didn't buy in right away. But there was something so unusual and so authentic that even though they were sinners and they, they were... They were not put off, and they were not made uncomfortable by his righteousness. That's the model for the local church. So if you have your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the, to the book of Luke, to the gospel of Luke. The story of the birth of the church in the early days of the church is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And interestingly, the book of Acts was written by Luke. Today, we're actually going to go back a little bit to a story that Jesus told before the birth of the church. We find it in Luke's gospel in chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. So you have your Bible or your Bible app. You might want to follow along and mark, mark some things here as we go. And we're going to put it on the screen as well. This is a really familiar story that's been told lots of different ways to make lots of different points. But unlike many passages of Scripture, we don't have to go very far to figure out what is the point of the story. Because Jesus makes it very clear. And although you've heard this story before, if you've been in church at all, I want you to listen through fresh ears if you can make yourself do that. Because we're going to, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about the why behind the what. This is the teaching where Jesus tells three stories, the third one being the one that we know, and even most unchurched people know some version of this story because we know it as the story of the prodigal son. But to understand the purpose and the point of the story of the prodigal son, we need to understand the audience that Jesus was talking to. So, so let's start to read here, Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. I just love this part. I'd love to think that I was the kind of Christian that even though, you know, I live a good Christian life, that, you know, the tax collectors and sinners were not put off by the fact that I'm a Christian, let alone a pastor. I would love for that to be true of me. 
So here's Jesus, surrounded by tax collectors, and we don't really get the implication of that, but people hated tax collectors because they were basically traitors. They had sold out their own people to Rome in order to enrich themselves. So you got the tax collectors who have their own category, which I think is pretty wild. So you got sinners and tax collectors, but the tax collectors are so bad, they're over here by themselves. So you got tax collectors and sinners. Verse 2. But the Pharisees, these are the religious people, these are the churchy people. The Pharisees and the teachers, because we think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. But the Pharisees were their super religious people. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So you ever wonder what Jesus did on this earth? Why did he come? What was his purpose? What was his mode? What was his methodology all about? Here's what he did. He welcomed sinners and he ate with them. And if you're on the outside looking in this morning, you're not sure what you think of the whole Jesus, you know, church Bible thing, and you're wondering what Jesus would think that you're even here this morning, and you're wondering if you came here on the right Sunday, well, here, here's, I think, what he would do. He would welcome you, and he would probably offer you a really killer cup of coffee and a homemade muffin. That's what he'd do. Do you know why Jesus hung out with sinners and ate with them? Because they invited him into their homes. Because they were comfortable with him with the most holy, most righteous person they'd ever met. And even though they were nothing like him, they liked him. And so the religious people are muttering, and they're wondering, because that's what religious people do best, and they're wondering, why is it this guy who claims to come from God, why is this guy who claims to be righteous, won't hang out with righteous people, with the religious people? Why is it this person who comes from God, spends so much time with all these ungodly people? What's up with that? This doesn't make any sense. And why are these sinners so comfortable with him? I mean, we're out here preaching righteousness all the time, and they don't give us the time of day. He shows up, starts teaching out in the field somewhere, or by the river, or up on a beach, and they flock to him. What is up with that? And so to answer that question, and to address this issue, he tells three short stories. First one goes like this, verse 3. And Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep? until he finds it. And as soon as he asks this question, all the men in the crowd are like, oh yeah, that's right, because you got like 100 sheep and you lose one, you go after the one. Here's the principle. If something is lost, the lost thing becomes the focus of your attention, right? Not the things that are safe and secure. When you lose something, that thing becomes the focus of your attention, not the things that are safe and secure. So Jesus says to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, you want to know why I'm spending so much time with tax collectors and sinners and all these outcasts and lowlifes? Because they're lost. And we don't spend time with the found when there is one that is lost. And just like you guys would admit that you would chase down the one lost sheep, I have come into the world for those who, from the Father's perspective, are lost. Verse 5. When he finds it, talking about the sheep, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, Jesus says, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. He says, you want to know what, what God gets excited about? It's not all the righteous people who come together to sing songs. You know, that's good. But if, if you want to know what the Father is, gets excited about, just find one person who doesn't believe, doesn't know what they believe, doesn't know where they fit in this whole thing. Help them along. Lead them to the place where they put their faith in Jesus. He says, heaven throws a party. 
He's like, that's why I do everything I can to relate to and connect to these people who are outside the temple or outside the church, outside relationship with their father. Oh, and then he speaks to the women. This is great because men in this culture, men never addressed women in public. And not, oh, there's a lot of, lot of stuff about this culture. It's totally messed up. So, and Jesus just loved turning stuff completely upside down. So not only does he address the women in his audience, but he gives an illustration directed to the women. So in this way, he wraps his arms around a group of people that had been completely disenfranchised by society. And I love this, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Here's the context. Women in the culture were given 10 coins, typically by their father. They, were, uh, they would make these coins into a headdress, and they would wear it as a sign of what their future husband would receive from their father. Isn't that how that worked for you guys? You... <laughs> and if a woman lost one of those coins, she wouldn't go out of the house with nine coins. It was like a disgrace. It would be scandalous. It would, it, she wouldn't leave home until all ten were properly placed. It would be very, very embarrassing to her and embarrassing to her father and her family name and degrading to her family. So he says, suppose a woman has sent ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends. I don't know how that works. Does, like, she calls her friends on her cell phone? I don't know. But she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost coin. Verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Just as she searched and searched and searched, she wouldn't dream of going out of the house without those coins. You know, in the same way, says, your father God is on a search mission for those who are lost, those who are not connected with him relationally. And when he finds that one, that one woman, that one man, that one teenager, that one child who turns their heart to God and connects with him through me, Jesus says, there's rejoicing in heaven like you don't even understand. Maybe this idea is uncomfortable for you like it would have been for Jesus' audience because there were people in Jesus' audience going, okay, so I'm a coin? I'm like a lost, a dumb lost sheep? I don't feel lost. I don't want to be described as lost. It's a little off-putting. And Jesus, I've enjoyed the teaching so far, but I'm a little offended that you consider me lost. And besides that, aren't you from God? Well, yes. Well, here I am. You found me. I'm not lost after all. What's this all about? So Jesus takes it one step further to illustrate the fact that he's not talking about being lost physically or spatially. He's talking about being disconnected relationally. It's not that God doesn't know where we are physically. It's that what God is after is to reconnect relationally in such a way that there's a father-child bond, which is what it was supposed to be all along. And that's what God is searching for. So Jesus tells this story, and even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard some version of this story. He tells a story about a son who goes to his father, and he says to his father, hey, hey, dad, uh, how's it going? I wish you were dead, because when you die, I get almost half your stuff. So I wish you would go ahead and just kind of kick off here so I can have your stuff. To which everyone in Jesus' audience was appalled, meaning the nerve of a young man. And the father does a strange thing, and I, you know, we, we don't totally get this, but he's like, okay, son, let's, let's, let's play your game. Let's pretend like I'm dead. I'll go ahead and give you your inheritance right now. I'll play along. Can you imagine someone you know telling you that story? You know, oh yeah, well, my 17-year-old son, you know, came in and told me he hated me, wished I was dead. So, and I'm like, okay, let's play along. Uh, I'm going to divide up the inheritance, give it to you right now. You'd think he was crazy. 
But see, the father in Jesus' story, and the point Jesus was making is this, that the father was so committed to connecting with his son relationally. He knew where the son was. He was standing in front of his face, but there was no relationship. And he thought, maybe the only way to regain relationship with my son is to give him almost half my stuff, to give him his inheritance right now. So I'm going to do it. That's how important it was for him to connect with his son. So in the story, the son takes the stuff. He's like, thanks, Dad. See ya. Nice knowing you. Hits the road, goes to the city, gets a big condo, surrounds himself with a bunch of friends who aren't really his friends, and parties away all of his money. And word gets back, and the father hears about it, and the guy's brother knows about it, and the whole family knows about it, and the whole community knows about it, and what he's done with his father's wealth. And then uh, in the story, Jesus says there's a famine in the land. And the son, good Jewish boy, has to go work on a hog farm which to the Jewish audience was a big deal. And they all just like groaned when Jesus told this part of the story. Like, really, Jesus? You had to throw that in there? And one day the son realizes, this is terrible. What have I done? The Bible says that in that moment, the son came to his senses. And the son decides to go back to the father. And in his mind, he puts together a little speech. You've probably done this when you've had to go crawling back to somebody. And he's got the speech all worked out. Dad, I'm sorry. I don't even deserve to be your son. And I understand that. But if I could just be your servant, I'll be happy. And the son makes his way back. He's got his speech all prepared now. Makes his way back to the father. Verse 20, the story picks up. Verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Why? Because he knew that his son wasn't just back physically, but that he was back relationally. And that was his desire all along. And the men in Jesus' audience cringed that a father would still feel compassion for such a son. He was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So there's the speech. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Verse 24, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. I, I, I knew where he was physically, but relationally we were dead. So they began to celebrate. <coughs> if you're here today, and you and God, like, you don't know where you stand with God. Let me just tell you this. God would love to have you back. There will be a bigger party in heaven when you come back than there'll be for all of us church people just doing the church thing all put together. Because you're the focus of his attention. Because he's on a search for you. When you come back, you won't find an angry God who has a list of all the things you've done wrong. You'll find a forgiving father who says, I'm so glad you're back. Let's have a party. Verse 25. (laughs) Meanwhile, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. He heard dancing. They were having a party. When you can hear dancing, it's a party. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he said. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. In other words, Dad, all these years I've been right here. I've never been lost. I've been found. All these years you knew right where I was. All these years we have been like connected. And yet you never gave me even a, a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends because like, that's, that's quite a party in itself with a goat. But when this son of yours who has squandered, he would have been happy with a goat. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31. <coughs> my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And then Jesus stops and in essence says, see religious people? This is why I spend my time with unreligious people because they are the primary focus of our Father God. He's on a search for that which is lost. And when you're searching for something that's important to you, you pay little attention to what has already been found. The local church that reflects the heart of the Father is the local church that's mobilized and strategized around that concept. The local church that forgets that part of the Father's heart becomes a group of people that are just about a bunch of searchers who get together and never do any searching. There are a couple ways to apply this to the life of the church, and I want to talk about two different groups for just a minute. If you're here today, because I don't know everybody in the room, but if you're here today and you're a little offended by that lost thing, I don't want to think about, I'm lost. How dare you call me lost? Two things. Sometimes we're lost and we don't know we're lost. Guys, if you drive a car, <laughs> if you've driven much at all, you know this is true. <laughs> Here's what I want you to come away with this morning then. Listen. If you feel like I'm talking about you, oh, so I'm the lost sheep. I'm the lost coin. Oh, now I get, oh, I'm the lost son or daughter. Here's what I want you to understand. The fact that God would call you lost reflects the fact that he considers you valuable. The fact that God calls you lost reflects the fact that, the fact that he considers you valuable. There are things that you own and you don't know exactly where they are, but you don't consider them lost. Here's an example. Your high school diploma. Where is it? You know you have one. Some of you. Well, I'm not sure exactly. I think it's in the basement. Well, where in the basement? Well, I can't put my hands on it right now. I mean, I have to look through some boxes. You lost your high school diploma? Well, I wouldn't say I lost. I mean, I know I have it. Well, are you searching for it? Well, not, no, I'm not, not searching. No, I'm not going to go home and search for it. Some of you are because you're weird that way. But uh, <laughs> why aren't you searching for it? Why? Because it's not that important to you. Maybe it was at one time and it was on a wall at one time and then it just wasn't that important anymore. Thrown in a box and it's in a box somewhere. Things that are lost, the things that you search for, are the things that you consider valuable. And the fact that God would say, hey, you're lost. I say you're lost because you're valuable to me. The thing that determines how much effort you put into the search is the value that you place on the thing that's lost. 
And the more value we place on it, the harder we search for it, and the more obsessed we become with that search, and the more we're willing to sacrifice in an effort to find it. And your Heavenly Father loves you so much that He was willing to sacrifice His Son in order to find you, in order to bring you back in relationally. That's how valuable you are. So I hope you won't be offended when God considers you lost. When He says you're lost, He's saying you're valuable to me. So maybe if you're here today and you fall into that category, let me just say this to you. If you ever come to the place in your life where you realize you're lost and you're, you know, that is you've tried to fill the void in your life with every kind of thing imaginable and you, you either lost it all or you came up empty or you kept it all and you're still empty or you, you, you know, if you ever come to a place where you realize, you know something, I think, I, I think you might be onto something because I just feel lost. I, I think there's a God. I hope there's a God. I mean, I'm beginning to think I have an idea what he's really like. The more I listen to this kind of stuff, there... But for me, there seems to be no purpose, and I can't make sense of anything, and I can't put it together, and i got a good job, and people think I'm a nice person, but I just feel lost. The good news is your Heavenly Father is the Father in the story of the prodigal son. And He can't wait for you to turn your heart in His direction. And for Him, the thought of you connecting or reconnecting with Him relationally brings such joy and excitement to Him. Then I think there's an application for those of us who are found. And the challenge is simply this. Have we joined our Heavenly Father in the search? Or are we just, you know, kind of hanging around the campfire, toasting marshmallows, singing kumbaya, and hoping everybody gets found somehow? I mean, imagine having a child who's lost in the woods, and night falls, and a couple hundred people gather to help you search. And they, they stand you up under the spotlight and, they give you the, and you give a description of your lost child. And the last time we saw him was on such and such, such and such a time on such and such a trail and here's what they, you know, he's wearing and this is how old he is and this is what he looks like. And as you stop talking, all the searchers go and they gather around the fire and they talk about what they've just heard. And they make some plans and they toast some more marshmallows and they sing some more songs and they bunk down for the night. You're like, okay, I thought they'd go now, but I guess in the morning. Okay, whatever, in the morning. And the next morning they wake up and they build the fire back up and they have a nice big breakfast and somebody's got a book about searching. And they share their thoughts about things they're learning about searching. And they have a discussion about searching. And some of them are off to the side praying about searching. Nobody's searching. Can you imagine the anger and the frustration you would feel as a parent? There seems to be no urgency. And I don't know if my illustration is really that accurate, but I wonder what God must think on a Sunday morning in America when he looks down at all the would-be searchers who have gathered together. But as we leave, nobody does much searching. But you're like, hey, I like these people. These people are my people. I love hanging out with these people. These searchers, they're the best. I love these searchers. I used to hang out with people who were lost, and I don't even know where they are now because I replaced all the lost people, kicked them out of my life, and replaced them with all these searchers. And as searchers, man, we just get together, and we love, we worship, and we sing songs, and we hear some teaching that, that, that might have occasionally stir something in us and it's awesome and some of us even listen to this podcast and we actually some of us even read our bibles and then we talk about it over coffee and it's just awesome 
But who's doing the searching? I just have this feeling that the groups of searchers that quit searching will eventually experience the absence of the one who's called us to be searchers. You want to know what's happened in countless New England churches? God's quit showing up. If God's chief concern for this time in human history is the lost, and we don't show any interest in participating with him on the search, why would he show up here? Why would he care? And we're like, well, we're, we're going to heaven. When we die, it's awesome. You know, we're in like Flynn. Woohoo! Let's sing another song because it makes me feel good. We're found. Yay! I believe that when a group of searchers get serious about searching, not only do great things happen in their lives, not only do great things happen in the lives of some lost people, but God is free to show up. And I think as a church, we've been, we've been very blessed because we've tried to be intentional. Sometimes we've been better at this than at other times, but we've tried to be intentional about creating environments and continually improving environments where people who need to be found feel comfortable. Everything from the look and feel of our facility to the music that we play to the clothes that we wear to the way that we use technology to our approach to ministry to children and families and teenagers and the language that we use in our teaching, all that's part of it. And feel that as a church, we're pretty healthy and we're on mission. We're moving in the right direction. We're in a pretty good place. We're poised for growth and expanding our influence and impact in our community in the months and years ahead. But if I have one concern, it would be this, that in our unity and in our enthusiasm and in our positive outlook for the future, in our feeling good about what we do on Sundays and what we do in service to our community in a, and what we, in our fi- healthy financial position and in the high percentage of you who are involved in the life of the church in a significant way, that in light of all the things that God has blessed us with, that we would become so comfortable hanging out with other found people, hanging out with people who've been commissioned to be searchers, that we'd forget to actually join in the search. And when that happens, we are no longer a blessable church no matter how big or influential or rich or how innovative we become. Years ago, in the early days of faith community, we're winding down year 20. In the early days of faith community, we, we, we used two simple words to remind us of what it is that God has called each of us to do. It wasn't original with us, but we loved it so much that uh, we adopted it, and it's because it's memorable. And some of you have heard me talk about this many times, uh, maybe more so in the first few years of the church. But a couple years ago, we brought this terminology back, and it needs to be at the forefront of the life of our congregation. Because while we as your pastors have a responsibility to reach the lost, listen, it's not all on us. It's our responsibility as pastors and elders and leaders in the church and as ministry team leaders to create environments where lost people will feel comfortable, to present music that's engaging for lost people, to teach in such a way that it's helpful even for people who aren't quite sure what they believe, to serve and love children in a way that just blows parents away. That's our responsibility. And all that's great. But in order for all those intentional efforts to have any impact at all, you have to fulfill your responsibility. So the way we say it here and the way we've said it for years and the way we're going to continue to say it is simply this. Invest and invite. 
Ever heard that before? <laughs> Please, anybody ever heard that before? Please, thank you. Whew. Okay. Uh, so I got about seven sermons over the last uh, 20 years that I could, y- you ought to listen to. Uh, you're like, wait, I've heard this before. Yes, you have. Say that with me. Invest and invite. The key to this church remaining blessable is that every individual who calls this church a home makes a commitment to invest in the life of at least one unbelieving person outside of your family. And sometimes those investments take a long time. And that's okay. But if we would always be intentional and just carve out just enough time and energy to invest in at least one person in your life who's lost and is living life far from God, and that doesn't always look the way you think it looks. But if we would just invest a slice of our lives in those kinds of people with the intention of bringing them to a place where they can hear the gospel, begin to understand what God wants for them, how to have the kind of relationship that God wants to have with them. If we would simply do that, I'm not talking about programs. I'm not talking about bait-and-switch events or anything like that. I'm talking about in the context of relationships that you probably already have. Oh, and if you don't have those kinds of relationships, it's probably time to do less life with all your comfortable churchy friends. Just saying. Get to know some people who don't believe just like you. Get to know some people who don't have all the same political positions as you. Get to know some people who don't see the world just like you do and who are looking for purpose and looking for meaning and are doing life really far from God. I'm convinced that an emphasis on invest and invite in your life will do more to keep us on track than just about anything else. And I'm not talking about, well, I'm a pretty nice person. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being a nicer person. You're already a nice person. You all are. We, we all know that. I'm not talking about being a contributing member of our community because you're already involved in serving the community. A bunch of you already are. I'm not talking about living a good moral life and avoiding all the big sins. You, you're already a pretty good moral person. I'm not talking about wearing Christian t-shirts and polishing the Jesus fish in the back of your car. I'm not talking about making sure your radio at work is always on K-Love. I'm talking about, listen, nothing wrong with any of that. When you pray at night, before you drift off to sleep, pray for opportunities, pray for boldness, pray for doors to open so that the next day you can be an influence in this individual's life and name the person. Know who it is that God is calling you to invest in with the goal that someday, maybe through your input or maybe through the influence of somebody that you don't even know, that they come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and reconnect relationally and have a growing relationship with their Heavenly Father. I'm telling you, if we are intentional about this, we will just become a group of searchers who aren't searching, just sitting around a campfire. And we'll miss out on the thing that God is so focused on. Everything we do in this church as a congregation, think about this, you'll be able to do better in heaven. We'll sing better, we'll worship better, we'll understand God's word better, we'll relate to one another better, everything will be better. The one thing you won't have an opportunity to do anymore is to search for the lost. So here's the challenge. If you're a Christian, you've already been commissioned as a searcher. So are you searching? Are you searching? Or are you just enjoying, you know, hanging out around the fire with all the would-be searchers? It's really convicting for me because I, I kind of live in a church world because everybody I know seems to be a Christian. That, and it's not just because I'm a pastor. I, well, I'm a professional Christian. We all know that. But doesn't... Do, <laughs> 
This doesn't mean that at 3 o'clock every afternoon, I get a reminder on my phone, go hit the, hit, you know, the, the stores and start searching for people. It's, dude, I'm too busy for new relationships. <laughs> Especially with people that don't believe what I believe. Come on. Who has time for that? I mean, for me, I got all these searchers to train and equip, organize, develop a strategy, get everybody plugged in. I'm telling you, if we want to be a church where God is free to show up, we've got to be a place where the lost feel free to participate and engage. That is, if we're going to be a church where God continues to feel free to show up, then we've got to continue to create environments. We've got to work on and improve some environments. We've got to do it in such a way that the lost feel free to engage and participate. That's why it's invest and invite. It's invest in a relationship. Bring them to a place where they feel comfortable coming to an environment with you. Maybe it's a Sunday morning. Usually it's a Sunday morning. Or it might be a thing like a night of worship on Good Friday. might be something like greater on a Sunday night with some teenagers. Somewhere where they're, they experience the gospel and they get to be around some Christians. Somewhere to see the body of Christ functioning like the body of Christ was meant to function. And walk away maybe thinking, wow, I, don't, I didn't believe all that. I got questions, but I enjoyed that experience. I enjoyed being with them. I enjoyed what I experienced there. It was not offensive. I didn't feel as out of it as I expected, and I didn't even feel judged. I felt like I kind of fit in. And we want to help you do this hard thing of See, we want to introduce your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. We want to introduce them to concepts of Christianity. And, and we're actually pretty good at that here. We want to introduce them to the person of Jesus Christ. And, and we won't do that in so many words every single Sunday, but every single Sunday we aim to provide something that's helpful for every listener. And on a regular basis, we're going to provide an opportunity for your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors to cross a line of faith and enter a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And we can be good at that. We can be better at it than we are now. But what we aren't good at as an, as an organization is getting your friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors through the doors of the church building. It isn't like, you know, premiering and promoting a new movie release where you just simply, we can't simply launch an advertising campaign and expect that people show up because that doesn't work. So let's partner together. Let's work hard. Let's do what's difficult. We'll work hard to do here what's difficult for you to do in the context of relationship. And you do what's impossible for us. The local church that stays organized and motivated around this one simple mission, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, will be a church, a congregation, a gathering, an ecclesia, where God feels free to, to show up and pour out his blessing. But if we ever lose sight of that, and we means me, and we means Pastor Bob, and we means our elders, and we means our ministry team leaders, and we means you, if we ever lose sight of that, if we ever get too busy and too distracted to actually search, then the chief of all searchers will go somewhere else. He'll find another group of searchers who will actually search. Would you do something for me for a minute? Would you close your eyes? And I know, I know, my whole talk this morning has been about creating environments where people are welcome to feel comfortable and they aren't going to feel manipulated or feel pressured into doing anything weird like closing their eyes in the middle of a crowd of people. But if you're comfortable with this, would you just go, just go with me for a second? You can, if you feel like you can trust me at all, close your eyes for just a minute. I just want you to bring into focus someone you know. 
And for this exercise, I'm going to suggest that it's not a family member, but bring into focus someone you know who's lost, someone you know who is relationally distant from their Heavenly Father. They may have been a religious person at some point, but right now in terms of them being connected with their Heavenly Father, they're lost. Just focus there for just a minute. Didn't take you long, right? Look up here. Would you be willing to commit this morning for the next six months or for the rest of this year to invest in this relationship with the goal of inviting them into an environment where they can hear the gospel and be given an opportunity to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? It might be your home at your kitchen table. It might be in a small group or a Bible study. It might be a men's group or a women's group or a youth group. It might be here on a Sunday morning. But would you do that? Would you make this commitment? If we don't, we might as well just pull the plug because we've become a little insider social club. But if we do make this commitment, who knows what God might do in and through this body of believers? Would you be a searcher who's actually searching so that we can be a church of searchers who are searching, so that we can partner with our Heavenly Father in searching for those who are lost. Here's what we're going to do. We've done this before. It's been a couple of years. We've got guys and people on both sides of the room. They're going to put a little card in your hand. looks like this. They're going to do this right now. It says, invest and invite. It has a place for you to put your name and today's date and a place for you to have that notarized. Um, it's funny, though. You really want to, you want to plus this a little bit Bring this into a relationship where somebody can hold you accountable to this. Where someone will ask you, how's that going? How's that relationship going? How, where's your friend at? How can I pray for your friend right now? It just says, I commit to invest in relationships and to invite my, family, my friend's family, co-workers, to a church environment in the next six months. And I give you three slots. You might need to get extra cards. But you know what? We can only invest in so many relationships. Let's start with three. Make sure the guys upstairs get them too. I would not suggest that you show the person that you're writing on this card their name. That don't say, hey, look what I did at church. Put your name on my card. It's a little weird. So, no, you're not a project at all. I bring three people. I get the best parking space. And this isn't about getting people in the door. This is about bringing people into an environment where they may hear something that they may not hear in the, in the one-on-one time with you. It's about bring them into an environment where they can experience life with other Christians because they already know you're pretty weird. So they may think you're an anomaly. Well, I know you're a Christian, but I love you. Other Christians I can't stand. Let's bring them into the company of other believers and show them what healthy relationships look like. This is simply a reminder. I hope it's a challenge to you to... Uh, to commit to invest in relationships intentionally. I'm actually going to let you sit for a minute and think about this, pray about this, grab a pen near you. There's some in the seat backs in front of you. Fill these in. And, uh, and you know what? You don't get bonus points for putting 15 people on here. Focus on three. Um, we're going to play some music while we do that. So let's just be quiet and let God prompt us here for these next few minutes.
Heavenly Father, with all that we have going on in our lives, pray that we'd never lose sight of this. As busy as we tend to get in church life, pray that we'd never uh, lose our focus here. Pray that we'd be investing and inviting, investing and inviting. I know from talking to people even this morning, there are people in this room who still carry that little card from last time we did this a couple years ago. They carry that card in their Bible as a reminder of their commitment to invest in those relationships very intentionally. Pray that that be true of us. Oh, we believe that hundreds of people could come into your kingdom, could come into relationship with you through this, through an intention, just as simple as an intentionality in our part. And God, we know that you'd, you'd be throwing parties every single weekend because of what's happening through us as we join you in the search. So Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege to be a part of this with you. And thank you for the searchers who came looking for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Watch this. Do you ever get tired of your boring day-to-day life? I know I do. I should say that I did. Then I decided to do something about it. You see, conventional wisdom says that you live your life and then your parents die and they give you whatever they have left over an inheritance <laughs> I'm sorry that just wasn't good enough for me so I decided to do something about it you know I want my money right now so one day I walked right up to my dad and I said to him dad I want what's coming to me right now that's what my youngest son said to me I want what's coming to me right now all I could think of that moment was, I'd like to give you what's coming to you right now. I brought him into this world, and I can make another one just like him. But he's my son, and I love him. So I gave him his money and told him if he could have a better life on his own without me, so be it. He packed his bags, and the next thing I knew, I was out of there. Kissed this boring place goodbye. I had places to go, people to see. So the first thing I did was, my son got lost. I love him, but he's no Magellan. I heard he had to stop for directions at least four times before he even made it out of our hometown. You know what? No, not four, okay? It was three. And, and one of them wasn't even my fault. I, I couldn't understand what the guy was saying. I was just like, okay, thank you. And besides that, the only reason I can't follow directions is because somebody never taught me to follow directions. Don't go there. Okay, look. The point is, I got out of there, and I started to live it up. I mean, I had more friends than I knew what to do with. I was eating like a king. I had the finest clothes, and the ladies. <laughs> what can I say about the ladies? I can say something about the ladies. They were women, but they were not ladies. Okay, okay, you know what? Never mind. The, the thing was, life was good. Until? Until my son's money ran out around the same time a recession hit our country. There, there wasn't any work to be found. I, I mean, I tried. I really tried. But there just weren't jobs. Eventually, I found a job. It wasn't bad. It was a manager's position. <laughs> it was an associate position at the... <laughs> Okay, I was a bacon preparation assistant. Which means? I fed pigs. I hated that job. I didn't pay much. I, I didn't have enough money for a place to live. There were many days I didn't even have enough money to eat. 
Sometimes I was so hungry, I would gladly have eaten the disgusting scraps I was feeding the pigs, but I couldn't. They wouldn't let me. So, with hunger pains, as a constant reminder of how I'd squandered everything my father had given me. I lived in agony day after day. Day after day after day, I'd watch and I'd wait for my son to come home. And my heart would ache as only a parent's heart could for his own child. But hear me on this. I never gave up on him. I never gave up on him. I knew that it would happen one day. One day it hit me. One day I realized that the lowliest of my father's workers lived better than I did. At least they had a place to live and food to eat, and I didn't have either one of those things. So I wondered, what if he never comes to his senses? What if he lets pride just get in the way? No, no. I will see him again. Again and again. These thoughts ran through my head as I began my journey back to my father's house. I knew what I would do. Um, there's no way that I would accept a handout, and, and I couldn't expect him to take me back as his son. So I would ask him to hire me on as a worker. I mean, maybe he would do that. Just maybe. Maybe today will be the day that my son will come home. That's what I would say every morning when I'd wake up. Maybe today will be the day that I would see him off in the distance as he makes his way back home. Home. That word means so many things. Comfort, care, security, love, home. I couldn't believe I was just a few hundred yards away from it. It was a beautiful day. I was sitting on my front porch, and that's when I saw him. He stood up out of his chair. He looked in my direction. He squinted his eyes to get a better look at me. And then I began to wonder, what if he doesn't take me back? What if... What if I get to him and he just looks at me and he says, I, I told you so, I told, I told you. you so. Some of you would just roll your eyes every time I mentioned my son. But I knew he would come back. I just knew. I just knew this was a bad idea. I knew I shouldn't have done this. And so I just stopped. He just stood there. I couldn't move. I couldn't just stand there. So he jumped. My dad literally jumped off the porch. I'd never seen him do anything like that before. It was like he was this little kid who was excited about something. And then it hit me. He was excited about me. So you know what I did next? I, I ran. ran. My heart was pounding so fast, I just had to get to him. I'd never seen him run so fast. He was running at me with his arms stretched out wide as if to say, Welcome home! Welcome home! That's what I kept shouting to him. But I don't know if he could hear me, so I just kept shouting it over and over. All I wanted to do was just scoop him up in my arms like he was when he was like a little child. And just let him know that everything was going to be okay. And as I got closer to him, I could see tears running down his face. He was crying. Tears of joy. And you know what my son did next? I jumped. I was nervous. I was excited. And so I literally jumped. And you know what my father did? Well, I fell backwards. He's a big boy. <laughs> and then, and then he hugged me. And he embraced me like only a father can. I kept saying over and over again, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I don't deserve to be called your son. My son is back. Get him some clean clothes. Uh, let's give him a meal. No, a feast. For my son will no longer live as an orphan. 
for all my hopes have come true. I guess it was hope. Hope that made me start that journey back home. Hope that got me through all the miles. A hope that my father would take me back and somehow I could be forgiven. Forgiven. It's all forgiven. And I will never bring it up ever again. There is no shame. There is no guilt. For my son was lost. And now he is found. sadness from wherever you've been come broken hearted and rescue begin come find your mercy a sinner come near earth has no sorrow that heaven can hear earth has no sorrow that heaven can hear 